Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Book of Abraham, Fireside. The reason I am addressing the subject of the Book of Abraham tonight is because for many, many Latter-day Saints, the Book of Abraham and issues relating to the Book of Abraham are causing them to lose their faith. In fact, one recent survey has shown that together with polygamy, issues relating to the Book of Abraham is one of the most frequently given reasons that members give for leaving the church. A couple of years ago, I had a friend of mine whose name is Chris. He was a very happy, very faithful member of the LDS Church. And one night on a Saturday, I received a text from my friend Chris. And this text simply said, my shelf just got nuked. Now, the idea of a shelf is pretty common among Latter-day Saints. We are taught that if we have issues that we cannot understand at present, for which we do not have answers, we are simply to put those questions on our shelf, and later on, perhaps, we'll be able to find answers to them. Well, for an increasing number of members, before they can get answers to their issues, the shelf breaks under the weight of the collected questions that they have heaped upon it. And this, unfortunately, is what happened with my friend Chris. And I found out later from my friend Chris that the issue that broke his shelf was the book of Abraham. That was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back for him. Now, when we get into the subject of the book of Abraham, it can seem very complex and Byzantine. So what I wanted to do tonight was to give a very brief overview of issues related to the book of Abraham and what it is that my research has shown me over the course of several decades studying and researching and defending the Book of Abraham. First, as most Latter-day Saints know, the Book of Abraham is scripture. It was canonized in the Pearl of Great Price back in 1880. And for any Latter-day Saint who is alive today, they have grown up in the church understanding that the Book of Abraham is accepted as canonized scripture in the LDS Church. Also, as most Latter-day Saints know, Joseph Smith translated the Book of Abraham, from some papyrus that fell into his hands back in Kirtland, Ohio in 1835. As part of his translation process of the papyrus, certain papers were created by Joseph Smith and his scribes, and there are a number of papers involved in this, and they have come to be known as the Abraham Egyptian Papers, and that's the name I'll be using for them tonight, the Abraham Egyptian Papers. So we have the Abraham Egyptian Papers, which show a lot about the translation process of the book of Abraham as we have it today and how it was done. We also have the facsimiles in the book of Abraham. There are three facsimiles, as we know, at the beginning and the middle and the end of the book of Abraham. And those facsimiles are what Egyptologists call vignettes. And they are frequently found on papyrus, and that is where Joseph Smith got them from the papyrus that fell into his hands in 1835 in Kirtland, Ohio. Ever since the Book of Abraham has been published, the facsimiles have been included, together with Joseph Smith's explanations of the different figures in those facsimiles. And in facsimile 3, we even have Joseph Smith translating the actual Egyptian characters that are found above the different figures in that facsimile. So that much of the papyri, at least in a copied form, has been with us ever since the Book of Abraham was published. And it was first published in 1842 in the church newspaper in Nauvoo. The papyrus itself, however, 
is a different matter because the papyrus was not taken west with the saints when Brigham Young led them to the Salt Lake Valley. Instead, they remained with Joseph Smith's family, with Emma Smith and with his mother, Lucy Smith. And eventually, those papyri made their way to Chicago, Illinois, and were long believed to have been destroyed in the Chicago Fire of 1871. Fortunately, however, that was not the case. We were mistaken when we thought that the papyrus was destroyed in the Chicago fire. Actually, at least parts and significant parts of the papyrus were not destroyed. And they somehow managed to end up in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, where they were discovered in 1966. And the person who discovered them immediately recognized their significance to the LDS Church, contacted Salt Lake, and arrangements were made to return the papyrus to the LDS Church, and they then published pictures of the papyrus in the Enzyme magazine in 1967. Technically, the name of the magazine was the Improvement Era at that time. This was right before the name got changed to the Enzyme in 1970 or 1971. So, in sum, we have three primary sets of documents. We have the facsimiles, which have been published with the Book of Abraham since the beginning. We have the Abraham Egyptian papers, which give us insights into how Joseph Smith translated the characters from the papyrus into the Book of Abraham. And now we have large and important sections of the actual papyrus itself that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Abraham. One of the most significant portions of that papyrus contains what we have today as facsimile one in the book of Abraham. The other two facsimiles are still missing. We do not have the papyrus on which they were found, but we do have the papyrus on which facsimile one was originally drawn. So let me tell you a little bit about myself and who I am and my background with the book of Abraham. I joined the LDS church in June of 1978. I was 18 years old. I was fresh out of high school. And at the time, I knew little to nothing about the background of the book of Abraham, only that it was accepted as scripture and published in the Pearl of Great Price. But as fate would have it, I became very, very interested in Mormon apologetics, i.e. in studying and researching and finding out answers to all the challenges that critics make to the LDS Church and defending the LDS Church against them. I was completely immersed in this subject back in the 1980s. For the entire decade, that was the decade of my 20s, and I got into apologetics even before my mission to Japan, where I served from 1979 to 1981. But after I got back from my mission, I felt it was my calling to defend the church against its critics. And that is why I got so involved in Mormon apologetics. I read everything I could on the subject, and I ended up actually teaching an institute class at the University of Texas at Austin Institute Building in the spring of 1989. It was 12 classes, each of them 50 minutes long, and I am the one who created the class and brought all the materials together in order to teach the students who attended many of the different criticisms against the church and how to effectively defend against them. Now, as you know, there are a lot of questions and criticisms about the LDS Church that have nothing to do with the Book of Abraham, but the book of Abraham itself is its own special subset of Mormon apologetics. And the questions and issues related to the book of Abraham can get very complex very quickly. And so once again, what I want to do tonight is give a very simplified overview of those issues so that you can understand the broad outlines. And if you're interested, you can do additional research yourself. Now, once again, getting back to me, I have read extensively in book of Abraham apologetics. 
Hugh Nibley wrote a great deal on the subject back in the late 1960s and thereafter, in other words, shortly after the papyri were discovered. He wrote a long series of articles in the Improvement Era magazine, and I ordered reprints of every one of these articles, and I three-hole punched them, I put them in a big loose-leaf binder, I went through them with a pen and with a marker, and I studied everything he had to say in those articles in order to help me better defend the Book of Abraham. Hugh Nibley also wrote a number of books, including one called The Joseph Smith Papyri, an Egyptian Endowment that came out in 1975, and another book called Abraham in Egypt that was published in either, oh, I think it was the early 80s. It might have been 1981 or 82. When Hugh Nibley left the scene, there were others who took up his mantle and continued to write articles defending the book of Abraham. Preeminently among these people were two Egyptologists who are professors at BYU. One of them is Dr. John Gee and the other is Dr. Carrie Muelstein. I've read numerous articles written by both of these authors in defense of the book of Abraham. In addition to that, I have given several presentations on the subject of the book of Abraham. One was on a podcast titled Mormon Discussions Podcast. This was a couple of years ago now, but it was a three-part podcast. It went for several hours, and I did a lot of prep work for that podcast as well. More recently, I have had the honor and the privilege of doing a 13-hour interview with one of the most noted Egyptologists in the world. His name is Dr. Robert Rittner, and he is a professor at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, which is the preeminent school for Egyptology in the Western Hemisphere. But I am mindful of the fact that there are a lot of people who may have difficulty going back and listening to podcasts that last for hours, even 13 hours for crying out loud. So what I want to do now is to synopsize and boil down the main issues that involve the book of Abraham without going into all the details so that you can listen to it in a relatively brief period of time. You can get a basic idea as to what the issues are. And if you are interested enough, then you can go back and listen to those other podcasts and get the detailed version. Now, the main reason I'm going to be giving this fireside tonight is because I received a letter from a listener to this program who goes by the name of Joe. And he asked me a number of questions in his letter relating to the book of Abraham. It was a very well-worded letter. I'm not going to read it here, but I will say what it covers. And what it covers are the main defenses to the book of Abraham that have been raised since 1967. And the reason there are a number of defenses to the book of Abraham is because when the papyri were discovered back in 1966 and then published by the church in 1967, everyone, I think, was very hopeful that we would be able to look at the Egyptian that was written on the papyrus and find that when it was translated, it translated into the book of Abraham, or at least something similar to the book of Abraham. Because you see, when Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham, there was really nobody in America and probably really nobody on the face of the earth who could have effectively translated the Egyptian hieroglyphs into English unless they were aided by some miraculous means, i.e. by the gift and power of God. The study of the Egyptian language was in its infancy at the time. And so Joseph Smith's translation from Egyptian on the papyrus into the English book of Abraham was definitely a miracle. It could not have been done simply by studying an Egyptian grammar and alphabet because really there was no Egyptian grammar and alphabet at the time that actually could translate Egyptian 
into English. But by the time the papyrus was rediscovered in 1966, things had changed dramatically in the intervening 120 years. Egyptology had come into its own as a discipline, and the ancient Egyptian language that was on the papyrus could now be translated into English by Egyptologists. So as I say, everybody was very excited, I think at the time, that the Egyptian on the papyrus that had been rediscovered would translate into the Book of Abraham or something very similar to it. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that was not the case. And actually, when Egyptologists translated the papyrus, it had nothing to do with the Book of Abraham. In fact, the name Abraham does not even appear anywhere on the papyrus fragments that were rediscovered. This is something that is not in dispute. All Egyptologists agree that this is the fact. Both non-LDS Egyptologists as well as LDS Egyptologists, including Dr. John Gee and Dr. Kerry Muelstein, everybody agrees that these papyrus fragments do not contain the Book of Abraham. They do not even contain the name Abraham. In fact, the LDS Church put up an essay on its own website, lds.org, which has now been renamed to churchofjesuschrist.org. They've put up an essay back in 2014 dealing with the Book of Abraham and its translation, and there they also state the acknowledged fact that the papyrus that was rediscovered has nothing to do with the text of the book of Abraham. And actually, what is contained in the papyrus is what basically Egyptologists would expect to be in a papyrus that was buried or entombed with a mummy because it was common practice to write on a scroll of papyrus, what is called a book of breathings. And basically, the book of breathings is the roadmap for the now deceased Egyptian, the mummified Egyptian, the roadmap to get from where he is successfully into the next world. This is a very common document in ancient Egypt because basically anybody who could afford to be mummified and could afford a scroll to be written out and buried with them had this exact same kind of scroll with them, a Sin Sin manuscript, otherwise known as a Book of Breathings. And that is what this papyrus was. Now there's more than one papyrus, and I don't want to get off into too many details, but basically the papyrus from which the Book of Abraham was translated, i.e. the one that has facsimile one on it, is simply a Book of Breathings. It is this roadmap to the next life. So when this was discovered back in the late 1960s that the papyrus had nothing to do with the Book of Abraham, scholars went to work and they came up with a number of different theories as to why this would be the case. In other words, how do we account for the fact that the papyrus from which Joseph Smith apparently translated the book of Abraham does not translate into the book of Abraham? One of the first of these theories was, well, wait, there must be missing papyrus because we didn't find all the papyrus that Joseph Smith had in his possession. We have fragments of those papyrus. We have some rather large fragments, indeed, of that papyrus, but we don't have all of it. And so therefore, the book of Abraham must have been written on one of those pieces of papyrus that was not recovered. It may have been on a missing part of the papyrus that we do have, or it may have been on a completely different scroll. Nevertheless, it was there. Now, there isn't much evidence for the theory that they were there, but this is a way that scholars came up with to explain why it is that the book of Abraham is not contained on the papyrus that was recovered. This is sometimes called the missing scroll theory. There must have been a missing scroll or a missing part of a scroll that did contain the book of Abraham. We just don't have it anymore. That's what Joseph Smith translated into the book of Abraham. So that's one theory that scholars came up with. Other scholars, not satisfied with that theory, came up with 
an additional theory, and that theory is sometimes called the catalyst theory. Now, the catalyst theory proposes that Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Abraham actually had nothing to do with what was written on the papyrus itself. In other words, it wasn't really a translation as we typically think of a translation. And indeed, Joseph Smith seems to have claimed that he was translating it in the way that we typically think of a translation. But the catalyst theory proposes that really this was a revelation directly from God and not a translation from the scrolls, that it was the mere possession of the scrolls themselves that catalyzed this revelation for Joseph Smith. And that Joseph Smith, because of this catalyst, i.e. the scrolls themselves, he then received a revelation from God about Abraham. And indeed, Joseph Smith may have thought he was translating the scrolls, but actually he was not. He was receiving a revelation from God, and that is what we have as the book of Abraham. That is what is called the catalyst theory. And there are a few variations on that theory, but I'm not going to go into those here because once again, I'm not going to go into the details, just the broad outlines for this fireside. So the missing scroll theory and the catalyst theory are the two main theories that LDS scholars have proposed since the late 1960s in order to account for the fact that the scrolls that we do now have do not contain the book of Abraham. And finally, there is another area that LDS apologists and scholars have gone into to discuss the authenticity of the book of Abraham. Basically, this area has to do with connections between what we have in the text of the book of Abraham, accounts that are given there, and connections that that has to the ancient world, i.e. stories and names in the book of Abraham that connect to the ancient world that we find in ancient documents that Joseph Smith did not have access to. So really, this separate area focuses on the text of the book of Abraham and puts to the side the way that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham. In other words, it says that's really not important. How Joseph Smith received the book of Abraham is not important. What's important is what he received and looking at it and comparing it with ancient documents in order to see that actually, yes, it was ancient. And Joseph Smith restoring things that were ancient and authentic, things that he could not have known about by any other means, serves as an independent witness that however he translated the book of Abraham, he got it right. Now, back to my friend Joe, because Joe raises these questions and these issues related to the book of Abraham in his letter to me. He raises the question of the missing papyrus theory. He raises the question of the catalyst theory, and he raises the issue of the connection between the book of Abraham text and ancient stories about Abraham that are reproduced in the book of Abraham or are at least similar to the account that we have in the book of Abraham. How could Joseph Smith have known? And Joe, understanding that I have an extensive background in the subject, though I am not an Egyptologist, I am an attorney by trade, I've been in practice for 30 years now, wanted to ask my opinion about these different subjects. So I wrote out a response to Joe on these different issues and I want to share it with you now. So here's my answer to Joe, which I wrote yesterday on September 1st, 2020. Today's date is September 2nd, 2020, when I am recording this fireside. Dear Joe, I begin. Sorry to have kept you waiting. You have many questions. And it is obvious you are well-versed in apologetic materials relating to the book of Abraham. I was very much like you at one point. Then over time, I began to realize some things. First is that you are arguing many different theories. You argue the missing scroll theory, and then later you argue for the catalyst theory. That is all well and good. 
but it has to be recognized you are arguing inconsistent theories. One could be correct and another could be correct, but they cannot both be correct together. Let me explain here. If you have a missing scroll theory, then that's one way of accounting for why the papyrus does not match the book of Abraham. If you have the catalyst theory, that's a different way for accounting why the papyrus does not contain the book of Abraham. But they're different theories. One could be right, the other could be right, but they both can't be right together. If I were to compare this to a criminal case and a criminal defense, I am a defense attorney, it would be like arguing that my client was nowhere near the scene of the murder at the time the victim was killed, but if he was there, well, he was acting in self-defense. You see, there's two different defenses. One is an alibi defense, he wasn't there, and another is a defense of self-defense, that he was defending himself against aggression by the person who was killed. Standing alone, either of those can be valid defenses, but you don't want to argue both of them in front of the jury, because they are inconsistent. I go on in my letter to Joe. You seem to think I have to prove all of these theories wrong. I see it differently. From my point of view, you have to pick one theory and then prove it right. Well, this only makes sense because if Joe is going to propose a certain theory that accounts for why it is that the book of Abraham is not on the papyrus, then he needs to prove that theory is true. He needs to advance some evidence in support of his proposition. He can't just throw out different theories and then say, oh, well, the burden is on me to prove them wrong. No, he has to at least advance some evidence in support of his theory. That only makes sense. Once again, analogizing it to a criminal trial, if I have a client that I say was not present at the time of the murder, I'm going with the alibi defense in this one, and only the alibi defense, not the self-defense defense as well. But if I stand in front of a jury and say, well, he was nowhere near the place at the time of the murder, that's not enough for a defense. I actually have to advance some kind of evidence in support of my theory that my client was not at the scene of the crime when it happened. I'm not going to get very far if I say he was nowhere near the scene of the crime and I have no evidence to support that position, but you really can't prove it wrong anyway. No, that's not going to fly. In a similar way, I'm responding to Joe saying you have to do something more than just propose theories. You have to advance some evidence in support of them. I go on. Nevertheless, over time and a lot of study on my part, I think sufficient evidence has been discovered to prove both of these theories, i.e. the missing scroll theory and the catalyst theory, to prove both of these theories contradict the manuscript evidence as well as common sense. Answer number one. Here you argue for the missing scroll theory. See, he has questions. Question number one where he talks about the missing scroll theory and I respond in answers and number them the same way as his questions. Answer number one. Here you argue for the missing scroll theory. The problems with this theory are manifold. So much so, it appears even Dr. Muelstein, remember he's one of the two BYU Egyptologists who are busy doing scholarship to defend the book of Abraham, so much so it appears even Dr. Muelstein is backing away from it and advocating the catalyst theory, at least as an alternative. It is clear from the Joseph Smith papyri, that's the papyri that was discovered, it is clear from the Joseph Smith papyri that several sequential hieroglyphs were used to translate passages from the book of Abraham. These sequential hieroglyphs can be found on a piece of the recovered papyri. The location of these sequential hieroglyphs is immediately adjacent to the vignette on the papyri that came to be known as facsimile one in the book of Abraham. So in other words, in the papyri that was discovered, there were a handful of certain hieroglyphs that were apparently used by Joseph Smith and his scribes 
to translate parts of the text of the Book of Abraham. And we know that because in the Abraham Egyptian papers, remember the papers that they used in order to translate the Book of Abraham? In the Abraham Egyptian papers, we have these very same hieroglyphs that appear on the papyrus in the same order in the left-hand margin of the pages. And then right next to them, we have translations of the Book of Abraham. It appears for all the world that this part of the text of the Book of Abraham was translated by Joseph Smith and his scribes from these Egyptian characters. And these Egyptian characters are found on the papyrus that was rediscovered. And they are found on papyrus that is immediately next to facsimile one on the papyrus, which is exactly where it should be because this is translating part of the text of Abraham chapter one. So in other words, we can tell from the papyrus compared to the Abraham Egyptian papers that Joseph Smith was indeed translating portions of chapter one of the book of Abraham from hieroglyphs that were immediately next to facsimile one in the book of Abraham. This makes sense, I go on. This makes sense because the text of the book of Abraham itself makes it clear that the representation being described, i.e. the sacrifice of Abraham, together with the idolatrous gods, is found at the commencement of this record. Now, let me just pause here and read chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. You can open your scriptures right now to the book of Abraham and read along with me. Is everybody there? Okay, so open up to chapter 1 of the book of Abraham, and you'll see there on the left side of the page is facsimile number 1. That is the drawing or the vignette that was on the recovered papyrus. The other two have not been found, but the piece of papyrus with facsimile 1 on it was recovered. And of course, facsimile number 1 is explained underneath it. You can see the explanation underneath it, where the explanation is given that this is depicting this attempted sacrifice of Abraham by the idolatrous priest of Elkanah, and that he prayed to God and the angel of God came down and saved him from being sacrificed. So that's what's being depicted there in this picture. And chapter one of the book of Abraham is the story that goes along with the picture and describes in more detail what it was that happened. So if you turn the page, now you'll come to chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and this is where it references the picture that's right at the beginning of this chapter, i.e. facsimile 1. Here's what it says. And it came to pass that the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon this altar. And that you may have a knowledge, this is the important part, and that you may have a knowledge of this altar... I will refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. So see, here it is. You're in chapter 1, and it's talking about the altar on which Abraham was laid in order to be sacrificed. And it says that in order that you may have a knowledge of it, I'll refer you to the representation at the commencement of this record. Well, that's facsimile 1, because there's the altar, and it looks like a lion. And you can see it there. Now, verse 13 talks about the idolatrous gods, those four figures that are also found in facsimile 1. It was made after the form of a bedstead, such as was had among the Chaldeans, and it stood before the gods of Elkinah, Libna, Mamakra, Korash, and also a god like unto that of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Well, if the reader has any questions about what these look like, the author of the book of Abraham tells them where they can look to see them. And once again, it's facsimile 1. Verse 14, that you may have an understanding of these gods, I have given you the fashion of them in the figures at the beginning, 
which manner of figures is called by the Chaldeans Ralinos, which signifies hieroglyphics. So verse 12 refers readers to facsimile 1 to look at the altar, which is like a bedstead. And verse 14 then refers the reader back to facsimile 1 again so that you can see the four idolatrous gods which are labeled there plus the god of Pharaoh underneath represented as a crocodile. So in other words, it is clear that the missing scroll theory really doesn't work because from the evidence that we do have, both the papyri that was discovered when compared with the Abraham Egyptian materials that Joseph Smith used to translate the book of Abraham, we can know that at least part of the text of the book of Abraham was translated by Joseph Smith from the hieroglyphs on the papyri that was recovered right next to facsimile one itself also recovered. And I conclude with this same thought in this letter back to Joe. So it is the text of the book of Abraham combined with the Abraham Egyptian papers where hieroglyphs from the recovered papyri were used to translate passages from the book of Abraham that make it pretty much beyond dispute that the recovered papyri contained the source for the book of Abraham. Now, because of this evidence that tends to show that the missing scroll theory really doesn't work, that's why a lot of scholars have gone to the catalyst theory because the catalyst theory avoids all of these problems. And it's probably why Dr. Muelstein himself, an Egyptologist who once promoted the missing scroll theory, he may still to some degree, but it appears from his public statements now that he is making room at least for the possibility of the catalyst theory being at work here. And we'll get to that in answer number three, but answer number two has to do with the connection between the book of Abraham and stories about Abraham in ancient documents that Joseph Smith could not have known about it. How does Joseph Smith faithfully reproduce details and stories about Abraham in the book of Abraham that were contained in ancient documents that Joseph Smith did not have possession of and could not have known about. That's answer number two. Sorry, this is a bit out of order. We'll get to the catalyst theory in answer number three. But here's what I say in answer number two. Answer number two, dealing with Abrahamic lore found in the book of Abraham. It is true, I write, it is true that the book of Abraham contains elements of Abrahamic lore and legend that are not found in the Bible. It is also true that some of those stories are found in sources that were not available to Joseph Smith. The problem is, see, there's a problem with this idea. The problem is that these same stories are also found in sources that were available to Joseph Smith. Sources such as Josephus, which contains the story about Abraham teaching astronomy to the Egyptians, and also the book of Jasher, which contains a story about the attempted sacrifice of Abraham. The LDS Church essay even acknowledges this in the final footnote. So the LDS Church essay on the translation of the book of Abraham, which is found on the official church website, even acknowledges this. It does it in a footnote, but it does acknowledge it that Joseph Smith not only knew about these books that contained these ancient stories about Abraham, but he possessed them and even read them. So Joseph Smith could have reproduced stories by revelation that were contained in documents that were not in his possession, or he could have simply used the documents and the books that were in his possession that contained these same stories and then incorporated those stories into the book of Abraham. It could have happened either way. That's one of the main problems with this argument about how could Joseph Smith have known about these stories, these ancient stories about Abraham that were in documents that he didn't have access to. Well, the answer to that is very simple because the same stories were also contained in documents that Joseph Smith did have access to and that we know he possessed. Now we get to answer number three. 
And actually, answer number three isn't the catalyst theory either. (laughs) Answer number three, we'll get to it honestly. Answer number three has to do with the three facsimiles. Remember one, two, and three, the three facsimiles that have been with us ever since the book of Abraham was first published in 1842. And here's what I write there to Joe. We have had Joseph Smith's translation of the three facsimiles since the book of Abraham was published. Almost from that time forward, though, Egyptologists have stated that Joseph Smith's translations are incorrect. This gets especially problematic in facsimile 3. Let's turn to facsimile 3 here for a second. Okay, We talk a lot about facsimile 1. We don't talk so much about facsimile 3. And if you look in facsimile 3, you have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 people that are drawn there. From left to right, 5 people. And you'll see that above their heads in these columns are different Egyptian hieroglyphs. And below the facsimile, you'll see that in several instances, Joseph Smith translates the Egyptian hieroglyphs themselves. For example, where it says figure two, King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head. Figure four says, Prince of Pharaoh, King of Egypt, as written above the hand. And figure five says, Shulam, one of the king's principal waiters, as represented by the characters above his hand. So it is clear that Joseph Smith is translating the Egyptian characters here, not just giving translations or explanations as to what figures mean, but is actually translating the Egyptian language itself. Back to my letter to Joe. This gets especially problematic in facsimile 3, where Joseph Smith claims to translate the Egyptian characters above the heads or hands above the heads of the pictured individuals. In other words, Joseph Smith is here not just giving explanations of vignettes. He is actually claiming to translate the Egyptian writing above the heads of the pictured individuals. In every instance, though, Joseph Smith gets it wrong. Even LDS Egyptologists agree on this. And it's not just a little bit wrong, it's completely wrong. There is no resemblance between what the Egyptian hieroglyphs in facsimile 3 actually say to what it is that Joseph Smith interprets them as meaning. What we know from this, and this is back to my letter, what we know from this is that Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian. Here is a textbook instance where Joseph Smith is claiming to translate Egyptian characters and he gets it completely wrong. So obviously what we know from this is that whatever theory we're going to use to defend the book of Abraham, it cannot involve the idea that Joseph Smith knew how to translate Egyptian because here he proves beyond any doubt he could not translate Egyptian by the gift and power of God or by any other means as far as that goes. I go on. Because we know Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian, It makes the missing scroll theory moot. In other words, even if the text of the book of Abraham and the Abraham Egyptian papers did not jointly attest that the recovered papyri were used to translate text in the book of Abraham, the missing scroll theory is a non-starter. Why? Because we know Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian. Which leads to this question. What difference would it make if the actual text of the book of Abraham were found in Egyptian on some missing scroll, when we know that Joseph Smith could not have translated it anyway. It is a theory, the missing scroll theory, it is a theory that is contradicted by the evidence, and even if true, would make no difference anyway, because we know Joseph Smith could not translate Egyptian. Okay, so now the answer to his question number four, we finally get to the catalyst theory. Answer to your question four. Here is where you set forth some of the theories apologists such as Kevin Barney have come up with to explain the fact that the book of Abraham is not a translation from the papyri. 
This point must be stressed. The only reason we have these catalyst theories is because the book of Abraham does not match the papyri and because Joseph Smith's translations of the facsimiles are incorrect. If the book of Abraham did match the papyri and or if Joseph Smith's translations of the facsimiles were correct, there would be no need for a catalyst theory. We would also have no need for a missing scroll theory, I add. It should also be observed, I go on, that at no time did Joseph Smith ever speak in terms of a catalyst theory. Joseph Smith was clear in multiple places that he was translating from the Egyptian into English. Joseph Smith was consistent in this, and as many of his scribes who mentioned the issue were also clear that this is what they believed Joseph Smith was doing, translating from Egyptian into English. Because of this, the catalyst theory has to posit that Joseph Smith was wrong when he claimed he was translating the Egyptian, that he may have thought he was translating Egyptian, but what he was really doing was receiving a revelation from God separate from and independent of the hieroglyphs on the papyrus. This means that not only was Joseph Smith wrong, but all church leaders since that time have also been wrong about what Joseph Smith was doing because they've taught the same thing. Then, in 1966, the Joseph Smith papyri is discovered and is found to have nothing to do with the book of Abraham. The name Abraham, as I've mentioned before, doesn't even appear anywhere on the papyri, a fact acknowledged by the church essay. Now, it is because of this that new theories had to be developed in order for Latter-day Saints to maintain faith in the book of Abraham as scripture. One theory is the missing scroll theory. The missing scroll theory was okay until further research proved it untenable to many LDS scholars. See above for reasons. Because the missing scroll theory became untenable, a new theory was developed, the catalyst theory. As I say, the catalyst theory is a really good theory for apologists because it cannot be disproven. It cannot be disproven because it removes the translation process completely from the papyri that Joseph claimed to be translating. The downside, though, of the catalyst theory is that it contradicts what Joseph Smith said about his method of translation. Additionally, just as it cannot be disproven, it also cannot be proven. Indeed, the ultimate problem with the catalyst theory, from my point of view, is that it is indistinguishable from an intentional fraud on Joseph Smith's part. Let me explain. A. The catalyst theory says the text of the book of Abraham has nothing to do with what is written on the papyri. Okay, but that fits for an intentional fraud as well. And B, the catalyst theory says that even though Joseph Smith claimed to be translating the Egyptian, he was wrong. Unfortunately, that fits for an intentional fraud as well. It really is as simple as that. At one time, I held to the catalyst theory as a possibility. But when I realized that the same evidence that supports the catalyst theory also supports an intentional fraud on Joseph Smith's part, it lost some of its luster for me. I hope these answers have been helpful to at least let you know where I come down on these issues. It has been only after decades of research on my part that I have come to these conclusions. It has been a very disappointing road for me. I wanted more than anything for the book of Abraham to be true and for Joseph Smith to be a prophet. I devoted my entire life to the LDS Church for decades. I studied Hugh Nibley and John Gee 
and Carrie Muelstein, all in an attempt to understand how the book of Abraham was true. And it was only very reluctantly and slowly and over the course of decades that I began to come to the realization that their arguments did not hold water. And that, in many instances, they even misrepresented the evidence in order to make their case. This was very disappointing as well. I conclude my letter to Joe by saying, I sincerely wish you the best in your continued journey of discovery. I appreciate your questions and your interest. Sincerely yours. So that concludes my fireside about the book of Abraham, why it is so important as scripture in the LDS church, the main issues that are brought up by critics to attack the book of Abraham, and the main defenses that are given by apologists in order to respond to those critics. In conclusion, I will say that the book of Abraham is very important because it gives us a case study in Joseph Smith's abilities as a translator and how effectively he was able to translate from an ancient language that nobody could read at the time into the English text of the book of Abraham by the gift and power of God. And one of the reasons that's so important is because that's the same power by which Joseph Smith claimed to translate the foundational text of the LDS Church, i.e., the Book of Mormon, by the gift and power of God. But in the case of the Book of Mormon, we don't have those plates anymore. We can't look at the plates and we can't compare them to what modern scholars know about Egyptology to see how well Joseph Smith did in his translation because the angel Moroni took those plates with him back to heaven or wherever it is that he has them. The Book of Abraham, on the other hand, through a series of very fortunate circumstances, does have the original documents, or at least critical portions of those original documents, the Joseph Smith papyri, that were rediscovered in 1966, and we can compare those to the translation that Joseph Smith provided to see how well he did as a translator when he used his prophetic gifts of translating by the gift and power of God. And when we know how well Joseph Smith did in his translation from the papyrus to the text of the book of Abraham, then we can probably have a pretty good idea as to how well Joseph Smith did when he translated the reformed Egyptian from the gold plates into the book of Mormon. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.